From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. I'm joined today by Tamim Saleh. Tamim is a senior partner in our London office and is with me at our global CFO forum, where he's speaking about artificial intelligence and machine learning. Tamim, one of the things that you've talked about is the notion of five different developments of artificial intelligence. I'd like to first focus our discussion on the impact of machine vision on artificial intelligence. So uh, uh, machine uh, learning and uh, artificial intelligence uh, is limited by the fact that when we input data as humans, uh, first of all, we are slow and we make mistakes. Uh, One of the fastest growing uh, technologies is capturing data uh, through image, image analytics, cameras. Uh, And the beauty of this is uh, uh, cameras, first of all, uh, don't make the same mistakes we do because it captured things the way they are. And they don't see the world the same way that we do. Uh, In fact, the spectrum is much wider than what we see, includes infrared, etc. So there are a lot of business problems. Uh, Take, for example, mining, when uh, traditionally uh, uh, people, geologists, will go and they would look at the ore. They will spend some time. They write a report. And then you adjust the angle of digging Uh, accordingly, and then you do this once a week to optimize the yield. Now you can do this in real time. There are cameras that actually monitor the geology and in real time adjust the angles of digging. For a mining company, this could be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, This also could be applied in safety, in oil and gas, for example, where the cameras monitor people movements. And and if there's any likely compromises, the algorithms would give warnings and you could do something about this. In fact, there are hundreds and hundreds of uh, use cases or real-life business problems that would be resolved by image. Imagine this, uh, the amount or the level of information that you get through a combination of image and sensors, etc., is up to a billion times more than the traditional methods. Uh, and with machine learning, when you get so much input, uh, you get the most out of machine learning much faster. So what are some of the gating factors? What are keeping companies from adopting uh, this this notion of machine vision? There are probably two things, uh, and none of them are technology. Uh, One is the talent, Uh, people who know how to use this image analytics uh, and in a useful way in business, people who could translate this into actionable, tangible outcomes. And there is a quite revolution going on in the world where gradually different companies are training and skilling people to translate these type of problems into action, but it's taking time. Problem number two uh, is uh, how do you connect these type of uh, propositions to an existing business model that doesn't work that way? If you're an insurance company, for example, uh, to uh, capture a claim, you still have to fill forms and call call center. Now, some insurance companies are beginning to uh, say, well, actually, if I take the image and I run algorithms on it, it's much more accurate than somebody calling me. They could lie in the first place. And uh, I fill a form through an agent. But it's going to take time. So they take an image of the accident, of where the accident was. And then that's interesting. Um, So you talked a little bit about machine learning. That is one of the other big developments of AI. Um, how, what are some of the things that are supporting that? And if you could take a minute just to describe how machine learning works. So machine learning, uh, there's a lot of hype about it and people get intimidated. Actually, it is really simple concept. What machine learning is, it is pure statistics. Uh, when a algorithms work to solve a problem, uh, they predict a, an answer to a question. Mm-hmm. A question could be, for example, what is the probability of somebody defaulting on a mortgage? Yes. 
Uh, and machine learning basically is to test what was predicted versus what really happened and then adjust the algorithms to get a better level of prediction. Got it. And that's what it is. And uh, machine learning becomes extremely useful as you combine the this with the human judgment, mm -hmm. because human judgment is not going to disappear, and as you absorb a lot more data, so you get more accuracy. Got it. Uh, and that's what it is. So when I, the driverless car, for example, uh, it works on machine learning. The car, uh, a, a real driver drives, and there's a program that observes what a human does. And then you improve all the time. And so if a human is correcting, that becomes part of the learning. Correct. So we need to think of machine learning as human and machine rather than just machine. Right. And, and you talked a little bit about um, virtual assistants as well. And I'm not sure if you saw that Google video where the uh, virtual assistant had a, a conversation with the, um, with the salon owner and made an appointment for their, their client. Yes, yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about how those virtual assistants currently work and what the future might hold there? Yeah, the virtual assistants now are still very primitive, despite all the hype. Uh, but in, in six to eight years, as the computational power continue to improve, the software technology continue to improve, and the infrastructure that supports this continue to improve, uh, our relationships with machines will change. So my generation and, and yours and others, and I'm older than you, uh, my generation uh, sees machines as uh, something that you input information into it, you type, yeah? Uh, the next generation, they will see the machine as uh, a genuine assistant that you can talk to. Uh, you can uh, put information there through uh, image and voice. Mm -hmm. uh, and the machine gives you advice and talk back to you and go into a process, into a continuous thinking reactions. Uh, we are not there yet, but it will come. And when that happens, it will dramatically change the way companies work. Whether a field force, for example, staff is out there uh, working and repairing uh, ducts, or somebody in a factory checking quality, or somebody sitting in an office in the finance function trying to understand data in a report uh, and, and trying to find more insight. Uh, and that revolution is just starting. How about a uh, little bit about robotics and how that ties in? So robotics, uh, we need to think about it in two different ways. One is software robotics. Mm -hmm. uh, that already exists and it works extremely well. So software robotics like a combination of text mining, uh, uh, image uh, recognition, automated letter writing, etc. When you combine these type of uh, assistants, mm -hmm. uh, you can dramatically improve uh, uh, repetitive tasks that humans do uh, and let the humans do the judgment part uh, because judgment is where we are gradually going to migrate to while repetitive tasks where gradually in the next decade or so will pass to machines. Uh, these uh, software robotics already exist and they work extremely well and they're improving all the time. And in the next three, four years, most call centers, for example, the agents uh, will be using this stuff. They'll be talking on the phone, Somebody talk to them, the machine will be giving them advice in real time. They will not type, they will actually, uh, or if they're trying to extract data, again, they will talk to the machine, they'll get it back. Uh, and it will dramatically improve productivity. So some organizations, they're looking at efficiency improvements of 50 or even 60% because of that. Now, robotics in the physical world mm -hmm. uh, existed for a long time, but we should not uh, mix that with the robotics using machine learning because there are robotics in the car industry for 30 years right. that use very repetitive tasks. They do not change what they do. They are programmed to do this. 
But then the future robotics, which is coming along very nicely now, they adjust what they do and they learn from what they do. They use machine learning and visual analytics, uh, the concept of voice analytics and being able to talk to people and gradually change what they do and adjust it and improve it all the time. And that will be a major revolution as well. And so voice and voice recognition and analysis. Could you talk a little bit more about that, please? So uh, voice analytics is also one of the technologies which are rising very fast. Uh, many, many call centers in the United States and Europe and so on now, mm -hmm. uh, when you have a call, uh, it, the system will capture uh, what you've discussed. It will be converted into text. It could be in real time. And uh, triggers and patterns of that text will be captured. And, and in some cases, your uh, sentiment through your voice fingerprint will also be captured. So how you feel as well. Uh, and for example, if you're on a call center and you say, look, I'm not happy about this bill uh, and uh, I've, this is the third time I'm calling you, not happy would be captured. Bill, third time calling, uh, immediately you can work out something. Your sentiment is captured. And if you're a valuable customer, you might be right at the head of the queue of everybody else uh, when the call center is connected through telephony to the back office and the process is much faster. So you might get a manager much more quickly, for example. For example. Now, voice analytics have thousands of different applications, and it is rapidly growing. Combined with image analytics and sensor, sensor technology, it's going to become part of what we do in everyday life. Uh, and depending on the uh, organization, if you are certainly in the call center business, yeah, you have that channel, or you have interactions directly with people, whether B2B or uh, B2C, almost certainly voice analytics is very relevant. And also within the organization. How about video analytics? Have you combined the audio and the picture? And, and how is that coming together? Uh, beginning to, beginning to. So there are lots of applications of video analytics separately from voice analytics. Mm -hmm. But there's a whole science, for example, which is team performance. Team performance is to optimize the way people work together uh, and like team mix, the way they communicate, uh, how they're measured, uh, the, the physical location. And image analytics plus voice are uh, used to provide input into the many, many variables to get the most out of these teams, whether they're R&D teams, for example, or sales teams, etc. working within the constraints of regulatory requirements, of course, yeah, because that's very important. So let's talk a little bit about data. The, um, a number of the examples that involve massive amounts of data um, how are companies protecting that data and, and keeping it from being used in a, in a negative way? So, uh, um, again, uh, companies are learning uh, how to do this because these uh, uh, developments are happening so fast. Uh, so to give you an example, in uh, the UK, one of the companies uh, have been capturing uh, people's images, uh, videos, uh, in real time, when they are looking at ads boards, when they are advertising boards and you're walking the street, uh, and uh, you are capturing how they feel when you have, for example, a, a shocking image, and you look at the product or you look at the image, and then using uh, these techniques to uh, uh, adjust the advertising uh, images and so on. Then there were questions, who has this data? Uh, what are they doing with it? Uh, and of course, the regulation does not yet fully answer some of these questions. It is coming along. So what companies are doing, uh, companies are, of course, developing capabilities to respond to regulations like GDPR. Uh, and essentially, there are four things that they are trying to be good at. Uh, one is to be able to justification, justify, if they're asked a question, 
How, why do you have this data and what you're doing with it? Uh, two, uh, they need to be able to track that data and understand the context where did that data come from uh, and whose data is it. And then thirdly, they need to be able to transparent, to be able to be transparent and uh, quickly should the question be asked, whether from the customer or the regulator. And fourth, they need to be able to intervene even before problems happen. Now, these four things I've said, uh, they're not always straightforward, uh, especially when you have image analytics and, and sentiment and all of this. Uh, but in the next five years, uh, uh, a lot of developments are going to happen in this area. So if you're a CEO of a company that's not using any of this right now, and you talked about vision, virtual assistance, machine learning, um, let's say it's a B2B, it's more of an industrial company. What are some of the first steps that you recommend that companies take as they're trying to get A, get smart, and then B, really move the needle on, on leveraging these tools? So if I'm the CEO, the very first thing I would do is that I would get the management team and I would spend a day or two days and really learn what is true advanced analytics is, what these techniques are. Very important to understand that. And I personally spend a lot of time with our clients to make sure that at the top level, they understand that. Okay. The second thing I would do is to, uh, um, to make sure that we are very precise about where the value is. Right. How do these things, what kind of use cases, if I'm in B2B business, uh, what is the opportunity from advanced analytics uh, to optimize the effectiveness of the sales force, for example? How about my demand forecasting and the entire supply chain? What is the value? Sure. Uh, what is the value on operations? What is the value on pricing? So it's important to understand that. That would be my second step. The third step I would do is then to think about the problem in terms of people. Mm. This is not a technology problem, and it's not the mathematics either. It, the main barrier is the mindset and not having enough talent within the organization to be able to do that. And the answer almost certainly will not be hiring people from outside. There aren't many either, and they're expensive. Uh, the answer is to uh, start from the business problem, prioritize and understand the sequence where you're going to deploy answers to these problems, as mm -hmm. in use cases, and then have a training program certification, cl clear career paths for data scientists, engineers, translators, etc. And then as you develop these use cases gradually, each one with a business case and return, so it pays for itself and more, you build the capability in the organization. Typically, it would take 18 months or so where you really begin to have enough critical mass that you know that the momentum is irreversible. But you start with educating yourself as a CEO. Thank you. Um, to flip uh, to consumers, so as companies become more and more adept at leveraging these developments toward artificial intelligence, in some ways, do you see that sort of um, tilting the field back? So like right now, digitization creates a lot of consumer surplus. Um, how do you see artificial intelligence being used to, I, I we'll call it the opposite of consumer surplus, but how can companies use it to perhaps improve their value proposition or to, you know, to basically um, create more consumer loyalty without necessarily having to give away the store. So how is advanced analytics, um, uh, you know, how, how will that help companies be more profitable? Yeah, so uh, uh, in, in a number of ways, yeah. So over time, mm -hmm. uh, companies will be able to know the customer much, much better. Okay. okay? Uh, part of the problems today is that we don't have a single customer view. Yeah, and the data that we have is not reliable. Right. And we cannot really have a good way to extract external data and match it to the customer sure. so we know more about the customer. Now, all these barriers 
uh, uh, can be overcome to a large extent uh, using advanced analytics and the new technologies, open architecture, etc., that allow you to run analytics and unstructured data. Uh, so what will happen, uh, and it is happening, by the way, uh, instead of, for example, of having eight customer segments, relatively generic, mm -hmm. you can have 15,000 micro segments. You can even go more extreme than that, and you have the single customer DNA. Uh, you can run uh, millions of correlations per customer based on their behavior, what they're buying, the socioeconomic group, where they live, etc., and find patterns, correlations with their propensity to buy something, for sure. example, or with their propensity to react to a message, or what makes them happy or not. And then make sure that you do the right thing for the customer. Yeah, very important. The ethical part of analytics is extremely important. You need to do the right thing for the customer uh, based on that very uh, uh, micro-segmentation. You combine that with uh, developments like, for example, being able to see traffic movements, pedestrian and traffic within 300 meter radius in real time uh, at extremely accurate level. Plus, you know the individual customer. And you begin to have options that you never had before around pricing, promotions, et cetera, et cetera. It's extremely exciting time, actually, uh, around knowing your customer better and being very precise about what you can offer them using the digital channels, et cetera. So at what point does this become a black box to the provider? In other words, if you've got 15,000 customers, you know, micro segments, how do you know that they're, that they're the right ones, that you're doing the right thing for each of those segments? Um, you know, is there, you had talked about this notion of machine learning and human involvement in sort of helping get better. How does that work in the, in the micro segment example that you just shared? So uh, um, the, the analytics are statistics and correlations yeah. based on facts, based on what Observable fact. Correct. So if you have a 15,000 micro segment, mm -hmm. uh, uh, whether it's relation to propensity to buy something or reaction to a message, it will be based on uh, how these micro segments have reacted in the past okay. and prediction of what might they do going forward. Sure. Uh, so uh, if you have got your algorithms in the right way and you're testing them continuously okay. using machine learning, you should be a reason, have a reasonable level of confidence Okay. in terms of knowing what the customer wants, yeah? So I've given you a long answer, uh, but it is not guesswork. It is actually statistics based on sure. facts and prediction based on that, yeah? So you can still have 15,000 microsegments, uh, but because you started, the, re the way you reach 15,000 is that you used hundreds of millions of correlations and data mm -hmm. to get to that level of granularity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even at that granular level, you can be very precise in terms of what they might want, what messages they should do, and you test that all the time. Yes. Now, important part of this question is that the existing channels, the call centers, for example, yes. or branches, or face-to-face, -face, very difficult to work at a micro level. Yes. But that's where the digital channels become extremely important. Okay. Yeah, because the messages could be tailored and coming right. from the algorithms and so on. Now, to, to go into the physical world, what are some of the ways that companies are offering uh, or executing those micro-segmentation techniques, but in, in real life, in, in, in person? So there are some companies that are testing, for example, in uh, consumer companies, yes. in places like Japan, South Korea, US, uh, when a customer comes in, in to, to buy a TV, for example, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, that customer has two options. This is in South Korea. And uh, they could either talk to a machine or to a, a person uh, or to a person 
uh, if they talk to a machine, actually, interestingly, 55% of the customers in South Korea prefer the machine. And, uh, <laughs> and then they ask the machine on the, uh, the product, et cetera, et cetera. They yes. trust the machine more. You're capturing data all the time, yeah. including the voice and how they yeah, feel, yeah, yeah. et cetera. Uh, and in the physical world, the customer is, use, is actually buying a product, seeing the product and holding it, but using a robot or machine in the interaction. Or if they decide to work with a human, the human also can it's have assisted. all the data and is assisted uh, with the machine. So over time, basically, there will be a blurring effect, mm. conversion of artificial intelligence, machines and humans in the real world. You'll be talking to a human, but he or she will have access to data that could make him or her much more useful to you. Sure, sure. It's like having a virtual assistant in the store Correct. that's helping you. Even though it might not be your specific virtual assistant, it becomes Correct. as you connected share with to it. the CRM system, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. And all this stuff are being experimented. Sometimes it's being, you know, it, it's business as usual, but we are still at the beginning of these things. So for the five developments of AI, is any one sort of the first step, or do they tend to all happen at once um, in terms of that interaction? Because you know, you've been talking about, say, the interaction between machine learning and vision, um, they seem to go hand in hand. Are there any that sort of come before the other? Uh, I mean, yes, in some situations. So you, you could think about it in two, three waves, how machine learning and artificial intelligence is evolving for business. One is uh, using uh, existing data that yes. we have uh, for insight. And that's almost pure analytics. You're yes. running analytics. Right. Yeah. Uh, and most of the application of advanced analytics today falls into that category. Okay. Uh, and then wave two is when uh, you combine vision and, uh, image, and image, image analytics and voice analytics with machine learning. And actually the machine becomes more like the agent yes. where we begin to interact with the machine as a agent and you have uh, ongoing process of interaction as opposed to us being proactive, putting data and then running a program. Right. Uh, and that wave is beginning to happen. And then wave three is that when you take this into the physical world, when yes. there are actually robots who are using this technology to, for example, you go to a shop and it will make the sandwich for you and the coffee and carry the boxes and all that. And that's wave three. Uh, uh, and even in today, each one of those waves exists in today's uh, world, but much more in wave one at the moment. And are there any... Um technology constraints right now in terms of the, say, you know, you, you talked about a billion times faster input with the vision processing. Uh, with, and are, are we hitting any limits in terms of Moore's law? Or are, is the technology sort of staying ahead? The problems are talent and mindset and changing the way we work. Okay. Uh, that's 70 or 80% of the problem. Actually, we've done surveys that shows that 75% of the problems are in these categories that I've just mentioned. Talent, organization, mindset. Right. Uh, now, when it comes to the more sophisticated techniques of, for example, uh, the virtual assistant yes. or uh, physical robots that use image, etc., cetera, uh, there are areas of that continue need to develop. So uh, processing power, mm -hmm. we still need more of that. Uh, dealing with issues like latency, for example, mm -hmm. especially when you're using 
real-time data, right. security issues, right. uh, and the actual robotics uh, uh, themselves, how the robots operate, like, for example, handling and so on, sure. uh, is extremely complex. And uh, it, the current technologies that we use are the most efficient. They are not the most efficient way of uh, uh, developing these type of robots. So uh, we still need more development, but uh, the, it's incredible at the current rates uh, every two, three years, uh, we are really going orders of magnitude better than where we were before. So you're looking at implementing AI within your organization. You had talked about a number of different key elements. Um, the first one that you'd uh, discussed was vision and strategy. So you talked earlier about how if you were coming into a CEO, the first thing you do is you get the, get the team together. Um, is that also when they, they sort of get smart on advanced analytics and they also agree on where the value is and what the vision will be? It's the kickoff of that process, yeah? Uh, when you, uh, you understand the truth from hype, yes. yeah? so you're not intimidated as a CEO, you yes. actually understand, then you are much more comfortable to begin to discuss strategically what does advanced analytics really mean for you. Almost right. every value chain whatever the industry, there are opportunities to have new business models or mm -hmm. new products and so on, as well as improving the core business. So you start with uh, uh, education, and then you, the next stage, which should not take long time, is to go precise and think, okay, what does this mean to my business? What are the specific opportunities? What's the value, et cetera? In designing organizational models to better support AI, are there any um, specific pitfalls that you've seen that companies should try to avoid or specific steps in sort of rethinking the organizational model that really help speed things up? Yeah, uh, we humans are very similar. Whether we are in Africa or North America or Asia, we repeat the same mistakes. <laughs> it's amazing. And there are probably three or four points which are important. One, uh, do not centralize the analytics capability and, ex and expect that the organization will adopt it just doesn't work that way. If you have a central team of data scientists and so on, and then they go to somebody with 30 years experience and say, here is a model, uh, guess what? It is very unlikely that uh, he or she will accept that. Mm -hmm. So uh, at the same time, uh, um, do not go the other extreme. Yes. Uh, do not have a complete uh, uh, chaos and everybody everywhere can experiment with analytics uh, without having a common language and common method uh, protocols, methodologies for mathematical modeling and so on, because otherwise you create new complexity. You'll never be able to scale it. So uh, you need to get the right balance between uh, um, uh, uniqueness and freedom within the business units and uh, centralization in terms of the standards and the commonality of methods to apply. And actually that is the trend that is happening. So typically organizations would have a small layer, mm -hmm. centers of excellence that define the approach and methods and tools and so on. And, and they do the training mm -hmm. uh, for the wider organization, but the labs that deliver, the agile labs that deliver the analytics, use cases, et cetera, are inside the businesses. Okay. Uh, so that's sort of one learning. The second learning is that you need to be very precise about the roles. What is a data scientist? What is a data engineer? What is a data architect? What is a translator? And embed that into your existing organization. So these roles should exist uh, if you don't have very clear definition of a data scientist, they're unlikely to stay in the organization because they'll get frustrated because everybody else will call themselves data scientists. You need to have them a career path and training and certification so that they are motivated. Uh, and a lot of organizations don't do that. Yeah. And then the third element organizationally 
um, you need to understand as a CEO that this is not just about mathematics and data science. Actually, most of the value is your existing people in the business who can translate their knowledge into information that can be modeled and used by a data scientist. So you need to pick up 10, 15% of the population uh, and train them in while they're doing the job. Train them to have that additional skill of being translators. Without doing that, almost certainly, you're not going to be able to scale analytics in, in the business. Wonderful. Um, to switch gears very briefly, if you were in the CFO's role, what are you seeing as the most common things that CFOs need to think about uh, you know, with the advent of advanced analytics and, and how it can help the CFO really you know, drive the organization to success? So the, the CFO uh, would be one of the most beneficiaries of advanced analytics uh, in the future. Uh, why is that? Uh, because at the moment, the CFO, uh, first of all, the information that he or she gets are uh, not real time, most of the time. Right. Uh, they're not always very accurate. Uh, and he's in the receiving end, he or she. Now, imagine if you are in an organization that uses image analytics in real time, voice analytics in the call centers, uh, uh, demand forecasting, inventory management. Now, if an organization is using advanced analytics in what they're doing, a CFO should make sure, this is action number one, that whenever use cases are being developed by the organization, the KPIs and the measurements that would help the finance function for, in the business are designed as part of this process. Sure. And over time, you're beginning to build an information center where you are much more proactive. So when demand forecasting is being done using algorithms, the same information need to go to the CFO and the context is understood. And how does it link to the full picture, for example? Now, when you add this into hundreds of different points over time, you will find that the CEO as an information center leader is much more proactive and strategic than uh, being a bookkeeper, for example. Right. Yeah, Completely different. In addition to that, the CEO need to have his or her own capabilities inside the finance function to use analytics for forecasting, uh, account receivable, account payable, all the things that they do, risk management, all that. Uh, but the opportunity is much bigger than the finance function. And if you are a CFO interested in getting smart on this, are there any specific uh, books or things that you'd recommend for a CFO who really wants to get quickly up to speed on it. Yeah, uh, a CFO, uh, uh, like any other executive, they need to really learn the truth from the hype. Yeah. Typically a day or two training are excellent. There are lots of places that you could do this. Yeah. Uh, reading books, yes, but be careful because a lot of the books also have hype. Yeah. Right, and they uh, can be outdated as well. Correct. Uh, but yeah, understanding the basics of statistics and how advanced analytics work and how it is being delivered. Yeah, the delivery model, the concept of agile teams, labs, really important because that's where the failure tend to happen as opposed to the mathematics. And then beginning to think, okay, uh, how do I build that capabilities in my team? Mm -hmm. And how could I be part of the wider organization? Uh, really, really important. If you intervene early at the CFO mm -hmm. and begin to have your fingers in the different parts whenever the organization is developing mm -hmm. uh, use cases, then as an information center, you really be ahead of the, uh, the pack. Great. I mean, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. It's a pleasure. We appreciate it. Thank you for joining us inside the Strategy Room. You can find an edited transcript of this podcast on McKinsey.com, along with the latest insights from the strategy and corporate finance practice. 
please be sure to connect with us there and on LinkedIn and Twitter.